Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The case of the boy in the box is one of the nation's most well-known unidentified person's cases. The tragic tale of the murdered little boy discarded in a cardboard box captivated America's heart for decades. And now that we know who he is, hopes are high that his killer will be identified as well. The boy in the box was initially found by Frederick Benonis, a LaSalle College junior who was walking in the small patch of woods along the side of Susquehanna Road, a country lane in the Fox Chase area of Northeast Philadelphia. It was February 25, 1957. The area was sparsely inhabited, but the house of the Good Shepherd home for, quote, wayward girls was nearby. Frederick later told police he was in the area chasing a rabbit he saw run into the woods. He came across a battered cardboard box lying on its end in a thicketed area that was something of a dumping ground for locals and was studded with muskrat traps. Peeking inside the box, Frederick saw a dead child. He waited a day to call police. He confided in a priest at LaSalle who counseled him to call the authorities, so he did so around 10 a.m. on February 26th. Patrolman Elmer Palmer arrived at the location described by the caller and took a look at the contents of the box. Inside was the nude body of a small Caucasian male. The boy lay face up inside the box, arms crossed across his torso, wrapped in a flannel blanket. Police investigators working with the medical examiner could determine some things about the boy who had no identification. He was white. He was between three and six years old. He was 40.5 inches tall and weighed 30 pounds. He had been beaten. His body was badly bruised, particularly on the head and face, but really all over. He also showed signs of malnourishment and he had not eaten for several hours prior to his death. His stomach did contain the remnants of his last meal of baked beans. He had been dead for anywhere from three days to two weeks. The cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. There were a lot of clues about the boy's identity that provided promising information. X-rays of the boy's body showed no evidence of current or prior bone fractures, 
but investigators noted seven scars on his body. Three of the scars appeared to have resulted from surgical procedures, which, when compared to records at local hospitals, one would think would go a long way toward identifying the child. This from the Doe Network, quote, Two of the possible surgical scars were on the chest and groin. They had healed quite well, leaving only a hairline trace. The third was on his left ankle, which looked like a cut-down incision made to expose a vein so that a needle may be inserted to give an infusion or transfusion. There was a one-and-a-half-inch scar on the left side of his chest and a round, irregular scar on the left elbow. On his chin was an L-shaped scar a quarter-inch long in each direction. There was no vaccination scar. The little boy was circumcised, and he had several moles, including three on the left side of his face, a tiny one below his right ear, three small ones on his chest, and a large one two inches above his right wrist. His eyes were blue, and he had a full set of baby teeth. Whatever age he was, he had not yet lost a tooth. All of these identifying physical characteristics were compared to records of area hospitals, to no avail. The little boy's hair was described as light brown or blonde and worn in a distinctive bowl cut. Found on his body were pieces of his own hair that led investigators to believe that his hair had been very recently trimmed, either pre- or post-mortem, while he was nude. This has led some to speculate he was raised as a girl prior to his murder. The compound of the Sisters of the Good Shepherd, which operated the House of the Good Shepherd School for Girls nearby, was searched extensively, and the staff questioned, but it led to nothing. Somewhat surprisingly, the little boy's body was clean and had been cared for with neat, freshly trimmed toe and fingernails. But wrinkling on the palm of his right hand and soles of his feet indicated that those body parts had recently been submerged in water. Besides the physical clues on the boy's person, investigators spent countless hours analyzing the evidence found near his body. For one thing, the box the little boy was found in bore the label of the store it came from and even the contents. The box measured 15 by 19 by 35 and had held a white baby bassinet purchased at a J.C. Penney in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. On the side of the box were the words, Furniture, Fragile, Do Not Open With a Knife. According to AmericasUnknownChild.net, a website dedicated entirely to this case, Inquiries revealed that the bassinet was one of a dozen received on November 27, 1956 at the J.C. Penney store at 100 South 69th Street in Upper Darby. The white bassinet retailed for $7.50, and this particular one was sold between December 3, 1956 and February 16, 1957, in the box. J.C. Penney had a cash-only policy at the time, so there were no store records indicating the identity of the purchaser. However, detectives were eventually able to track down and rule out 11 of the 12 bassinet purchasers. The box appeared a bit battered and was slightly weathered, but the inside was still dry. It was sent to the FBI lab for analysis, but no distinct fingerprints were found. Then there was the blanket the little boy was wrapped in. Oddly, the blanket had been cut into three pieces. He was wrapped in the largest one, which measured 33 by 76 inches. As a whole, the blanket was inexpensive, well-worn flannel with faded designs of diamonds and blocks in green, rust-colored red, brown, and white. An additional piece of the blanket was found inside the box, smeared with automotive grease. It measured 31 by 51, 
and had a piece missing which was never located. Again, according to americasunknownchild.net, the blanket had been mended with cheap cotton thread, probably on a home sewing machine. The Philadelphia Textile Institute analyzed the blanket and determined it had been made either at Beacon Mills, Swanoa, North Carolina, or Esmond Mills at Granby, Quebec, Canada. Unfortunately, the blanket was one of thousands manufactured and shipped to scores of wholesalers throughout the United States, so tracing its specific origin was impossible. Investigators turned to other items found in the weedy underbrush where the boy in the box was found in hopes that some of them might provide clues to his identity. Several items were thought to possibly be related. A child-sized yellow flannel shirt size 4 fit the little boy. A small tan scarf could also have been his. But of course they didn't help identify him. Some adult-sized items found at the scene seemed more promising. A newsboy-style cap made of royal blue corduroy with a leather strap and buckle across the back was found about 17 feet from the box. A distinct pathway through the brush connected the box and the spot where the hat was found. The size 7 and 1 8 hat had a label sewn in it, which indicated it was made by Robin's Bald Eagle Hat and Cap Company at 2603 South 7th Street in Philadelphia. Investigators went to the shop and inquired of its owner as to whether she recalled the purchaser of the cap. Amazingly, the shop owner, Ms. Hannah Robbins, easily identified the cap. It was one of just 12 made from corduroy remnants sometime before May 1956. And the man who had purchased the cap had made a special request to have the strap sewn onto it. Because of this custom order, Mrs. Robbins could recall some information about the man who bought the cap, although she did not know his name. He was a white male, between the ages of 26 and 30. He came into the shop alone and wore working clothes. He had no accent. And he had blonde hair, and she felt, resembled the photo of the boy in the box on the police circular. The cap was sent to the FBI lab for analysis, but nothing of significance was found. There was another piece of possible evidence found on the ground near the box. This was a white handkerchief embroidered with the initial G. Some short pieces of hair on the handkerchief were compared to those found on the boy's body, but they were not consistent. After all the tests that could be done were done, the boy was buried in an unadorned grave in a so-called potter's field, and there he stayed until 1998. Frederick Bononis, who found the boy, passed a polygraph and satisfied police that he was not involved. Over the decades, the boy in the box case captured the hearts of investigators throughout the region, and every possible angle, lead, avenue, tip, rumor, even every psychic vision was explored. The police checked out orphanages and other child care institutions, local doctors and hospitals. They placed pictures of the boy in newspapers and sent out photos with utility bills. Posters with his image were hung on storefronts. Thousands of flyers bearing the likeness of the boy were distributed. The details of these extensive investigations are beyond the scope of this podcast. So are all the theories and tangents that were investigated over the years, both credible and dubious. If you're interested in hearing more about these, I recommend the americasunknownchild.net website for a chronology, details, and images. The VDOC Society considered the boy in the box case many times over the years. 
The group is based in Philadelphia, so the story of the unidentified little boy had a special significance to the group. In November 1998, VDOT collaborated with the Philadelphia Police Department and America's Most Wanted, which aired a segment about the case the month before, to exhume the body of the boy in the box in order to conduct DNA testing. The FBI's Philadelphia Division Evidence Recovery Team executed the recovery of tissue samples for testing. However, this proved difficult as the remains were too degraded after 40 years. Finally, an independent lab successfully extracted mitochondrial DNA from the boy's teeth. This DNA is inherited along the maternal line. After the boy was exhumed and samples taken, members of law enforcement, the VDOC Society, and others ensured that the boy in the box finally had a proper burial. A solemn procession complete with bagpipes accompanied his coffin as it was carried to a new burial place, where he was reinterred in a tomb in Ivy Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. He was given a large headstone bearing a lamb and inscribed America's Unknown Child, dedicated November 11, 1998. His original headstone, engraved with the words, Heavenly Father, Bless This Unknown Boy, February 25, 1957, was placed at the foot of the grave. The boy in the box lay undisturbed for 21 years. In 2019, there was a final push to identify him. It was determined the case of the unknown child would benefit from the application of modern forensic techniques, said Philadelphia Police Captain Jason Smith. Of course, he was referring to forensic genealogy. This time, they needed enough DNA to obtain a SNP profile. A court order was obtained on April 24, 2019, to have the boy exhumed once again. Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick has been vocal about the complexity of this case. This was the most challenging case in my whole career, she told reporters. It took two and a half years to get the DNA in shape for proper testing. It was so bad. Dr. Fitzpatrick attended the exhumation and saw that the boy's remains were just brittle bones at that point. Basically, the DNA was so degraded it was barely usable. I'm quoting here from Dr. Fitzpatrick. DNA is a big molecule. It just completely shatters. It breaks apart. It's exposed to humidity, the acid in the soil, rain, temperature, heat. When we got the DNA, it was basically just confetti. Here is a clip from my interview with Dr. Fitzpatrick. Speaking of the boy in the box case, I'll cover that one because obviously that's a case that's really near and dear to many people's hearts. I I know that Misty Gillis worked on the case. I saw a quote from you saying that this was the most challenging case in your whole career. Is that because the DNA was so degraded? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was it was so degraded. And also, we didn't have a budget. So I covered some of the costs myself initially. And also... Yeah, it was degraded. So, you know, I tried several times this technique, this technique, this technique. I even went to the International Commission on Missing Persons, and the DNA was in terrible condition. In fact, we needed specialty work done, and we hadn't, did not have a budget. Dr. Fitzpatrick told me that the processes involved trying to knit the boy's DNA back together could have cost untold amounts of money, funds that identifinders just didn't have. So she reached out to various contacts in the international research community, including labs and people willing to try experimental research techniques to see if they could accomplish the goal at the lowest possible cost. Well, it worked. Dr. Fitzpatrick and her team were able to knit the DNA back together and finally generate a SNP profile. 
She and her team uploaded it into GEDmatch, and in the spring of 2021, Identifinder's cold case liaison and genealogist Misty Gillis went to work. There were relatives of the boy in the box in the GEDmatch database, third and fourth cousins of the boy's biological mother. Misty Gillis discussed the process of building trees to determine the boy's ancestry in an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer. She said, quote, On the maternal side, I used a whole bunch of third and fourth cousins that I was able to build out their genetic trees and see where they married into. I built those trees down and down painstakingly. It took me about two months until I was able to identify who the birth mother was, end quote. After literally more than half a century, investigators now had a lead on the identity of the boy in the box's mother. Because the mother's name is on the birth certificate, detectives were able to obtain it from the Pennsylvania Department of Health's Division of Vital Records after getting a court order. The birth certificate for the boy in the box reflected the birth name of the boy. After literally more than 60 years, the investigators now knew that he was Joseph Augustus Zarelli, age 4, born January 13, 1953. Joseph's father's name was on the birth certificate as well, but that wasn't enough for investigators to rest their case. For one thing, the birth certificate indicated that his parents weren't married. Back in 1953, when Joseph Zarelli was born, the potentially stigmatizing out-of-wedlock birth might have resulted in a father's name being entered on the birth certificate, even if he was not the biological father. But they had a place to start. Misty Gillis started by contacting matches of Joseph's and Jedmatch, who, she concluded from the genealogy, were likely paternal relatives of the boys. Gillis told the Inquirer, quote, We had the mom already, so it was the dad's side we had to work on. So I had to call relatives on the dad's side and see if they would upload their DNA. Gillis contacted a man named Justin Thomas, who, she suspected, based on their shared DNA, was a relative of Joseph's on the Zarelli side. You might be a match to a cold case in Philadelphia, Gillis told him. Thomas told her he had taken a DNA test with Ancestry.com for fun in 2017 and uploaded his results to GEDmatch. Then Gillis called him out of the blue and told him he was a match to a Philadelphia cold case. Gillis said, I reached out to him to ask if his family would consider taking a test. Gillis already knew the level of Thomas's shared DNA with Joseph. What she needed was additional matches with others in his family who might be even closer matches to help her home in on the identity of his father. Through Thomas, Gillis was able to contact Thomas's mother, who agreed to do a DNA test and upload to GEDmatch. And those results showed that she was a first cousin of Joseph Zarelli on the paternal side. She was the niece of his father. Thomas's mother's genetic information allowed Gillis to fill in the blanks. She was able to conclude, with what she says is 100% certainty, that the mother and father listed in Joseph's birth certificate were, in fact, his biological parents. They are both deceased. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw held a news conference on December 8, 2022, announcing that at long last, the boy in the box had definitively been identified as Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Philadelphia police representatives told the media that both of Joseph's parents were deceased, but that Joseph had living siblings who had been contacted. Investigators were now trying to determine what had happened to Joseph and who had left him in a cardboard box. Lower Makefield Township Police Chief Ken Coluzzi said what everyone was feeling at the time of the press conference. Quote, 
It's a great feeling because that was our goal originally, to put a name to this little boy, to give him some dignity. Boy in the Box was awful, terrible to be called. America's Unknown Child was a step up, but this is the ultimate. This is fantastic to have a name. But now there's an avenue to investigate." Unquote. Captain Smith elaborated, quote, We have our suspicions as to who may be responsible, but it would be irresponsible of me to share these suspicions as this remains an ongoing and active criminal investigation. It's going to be an uphill battle for us to definitively determine who caused this child's death, unquote. Okay, so what do we know about Joseph and his case? Joseph Augustus Zarelli was born on January 13, 1953. Investigators did not reveal the names of Joseph's parents at the press conference, saying only that his birth certificate slightly misspelled his father's name and that the child was known to have resided around 61st and Market Streets in Philly. But thanks to some bang-up reporting by the Philadelphia Inquirer, we now have quite a bit of information. His mother was Mary Elizabeth Abel. She would have been 21 when the child was born. His father was Augustus J. Gus Zarelli. Elizabeth, or Betsy as she was called, was from a family of five sisters living in the Tioga neighborhood of Philadelphia. Gus was a stonemason, part of a family of Italian immigrants in West Philly. They did not marry, and we, the public, do not know who raised Joseph. The Inquirer uncovered that Betsy graduated from the Merle Dobbins Career and Technical Education High School in North Philadelphia in 1949. She gave another child, a newborn girl, up for adoption in 1950 through Catholic services. If Joseph, too, was adopted, the Inquirer has uncovered no records of that. Betsy became a cashier at a Philadelphia movie theater and married its manager, a John J. Plunkett. Her relatives who were interviewed on condition of anonymity told the Inquirer that it was out of the question that Betsy had anything to do with Joseph's beating death. One close relative said, no way in the world. There was no cruelty, no meanness that swelled within her heart and soul. The relative said the family knew nothing of the pregnancy and was shocked to learn that the boy in the box was Betsy's child. I was stunned, the relative said. I remember the story. We used to get utility bills with his face on it, asking if anyone recognized him. So it's pretty evident that Betsy did not raise Joseph since her relatives knew nothing of the child. What about the father, Gus Zarelli? The Zarelli surname is uncommon in Philadelphia and led investigators directly to the family descended from Italian immigrants. Gus's four living children were blindsided by the news that their sibling was the boy in the box, and they wished to remain out of the spotlight. Their attorney, Dan Bush, said in a statement to the Inquirer that, quote, each of his children is extraordinarily sympathetic to the death of this young boy and horrified by the events that are being discussed. However, until recently, they had never heard of any of this. They have never been shown anything that links their father or any member of their family to this, end quote. Bush said of Gus and his living descendants that they have been, quote, attacked in every possible social media outlet, suggesting the most awful of things, all of which are baseless. There has been no credible allegation by anyone, including the Philadelphia Police Department, that their father knew of the birth of this child or had anything to do with the life of this child, and certainly nothing even remotely suggesting that he knew of or had anything to do with any harm having come to this child, Bush said. However, Joseph Zarelli was never reported missing, and Dr. Fitzpatrick has said that she believes that Joseph was not adopted and was raised within the families of one of the parents. 
It does not seem from the facts that we know that this was his mother's family. And a handkerchief found at the scene bore the initial G. I'm quoting here from the Inquirer. What remains unclear for now is how or where Zarelli met Abel and whether he knew she'd been pregnant and had a child. Zarelli was five years older than Abel and living in the 6300 block of Callowhill Street with his family in 1950. Abel's relative said one of her sisters may have lived in West Philadelphia. Abel did too, the relative said, on the second floor of a walk-up apartment with Plunkett, that's her eventual husband, and their daughter who was born in December 1956. The couple later moved to Ruffner Street in Nicetown. Plunkett drove a cab. They had four children together. One of them died in childbirth. Gus Zarelli went on to marry in 1958, leaving Callowhill Street. The family's businesses blossomed into a lucrative construction and real estate operation in Chester County, where most of his children still live. By all accounts, he was beloved by his children, well-respected by peers, and showed signs of grace in difficult times. End quote. Gus Zarelli died in 2014 at age 87. Betsy went on to work at Crown Can Company and other businesses on Erie Avenue. She died in 1991 after a prolonged illness. Her relative told the inquirer she died of lung cancer, likely from asbestos exposure after years of working in factories. Misty Gillis, the identifinder's forensic genealogist who identified Joseph after years of work, told AB6, quote, I've actually known about this case since I was a child. I've followed true crime and was interested in it. It's been very personal to me because I have young children around the same age as Joseph, end quote. Gillis brought her own children to a symbolic visit to Joseph's grave to bring him toy cars from the 1950s. Speaking of Joseph's grave, Joseph finally received a brand new headstone slash memorial at his grave with his true name and birth date on it. A dedication ceremony was held on January 13th this year. Some of his Zarelli relatives were in attendance. They indicated to the inquirer that they are doing their own digging into the story. Quote, our family was blindsided by this, one family member said. We want to honor him by finding out his entire story. We want to put a real closure to the story. On the new memorial, Joseph's date of death is listed as the day he was found in the box, February 25, 1957. We may never know the real date or who killed him. The death of Joseph Azarelli remains an active homicide investigation. There is a reward for information that leads to an arrest and conviction of a suspect in this case. If you're interested in hearing more from Dr. Fitzpatrick on her experience with this case, you can hear a lengthy interview with her on The Boy in the Box Case on the Mind Over Murder podcast from my friends Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. The episode aired on December 26, 2022, and I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID Podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to DNA ID Podcast.com. 
You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID.